Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. This is the Sunday that we finally, after months and months of waiting, begin our new sermon series here in the book of Galatians. We're going to be doing a book study, and if you don't know what a book study is, a book study is simply a verse-by-verse journey through a book of, of the Bible so that we can understand it in depth, and that means we'll be taking the next several months or longer working through the book of Galatians, all right? So with no further ado, Galatians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 10, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity now to begin working through this letter to the Galatians. I pray, Lord, that you will use it to make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it seems only fitting that as we begin this new phase here in Cornerstone's history and in our ministry here, that we at the same time begin our new book study here in the book of Galatians. You see, Galatians is a very timely book for us to work through, particularly at this stage in our history. I mean, here we are at the beginning of a process that we hope and pray will culminate in the birth of a new church here out of our own body in Hampton Roads. And since our hope and prayer is that we will plant a new church out of this little church body that you see here, it seems only right that we ask this question, what exactly do we want this new church that would come out of our own church to look like? And as you hear that question, you might be tempted to think, well, that's a, that's a really easy question to answer because we would want this church to look like us. We'd want it to look like Cornerstone. But the problem with that answer is that it doesn't really answer the question, at least not in its fullest, because it doesn't tell us in what sense we would want this new church to look like us. I mean, do they have to do everything exactly like we do it? Do they have to, you know, have course seminar on the second Sunday night of each month? And do they have to to run their children's ministries and their community groups the same way? Do they have to have a stunningly handsome teaching pastor like we have here? I mean, 
Right there, a great example. Clearly, they can't be exactly like us. So in what sense then, why are you laughing? In what sense then would we want them to be like us? Well, I can tell you what we're not looking for, and then I will give you some categories to tell you sort of what we are looking for. In terms of what we're not looking for, we're not looking for a little cornerstone. We have no desire, no expectation whatsoever that the new church would somehow look and act exactly like we look and act. And it's kind of a silly thing if you think about it at best to, to want such a thing because there's no possible way that two churches made up with different people in different spot, parts of town and, and different realities that they're dealing with are going to look and act exactly the same. It just would never happen. So it would be silly for us to, to want that at best. And at worst, it could actually be a sinful thing to desire that the new church look and act exactly like us because we always have to remember we've not been called to make people or churches into the image of Cornerstone. Rather, we've been called to make people and hopefully churches as well into the image of Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure we never get those two things confused, even if we were doing it with the best of intentions. Well, if that's not what we're looking for, the question is, what, what are we looking for? And I came up with four general categories that I think will at least sort of give us some guidelines for what we would want to see, whether it's in a new church or whether it's for us, really any church we would find anywhere. I think these would apply to them all. First, we would want to see a church that is dedicated to the purity of the gospel. A church that is dedicated to the purity of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that we would want to see that they are dedicated to the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They would be dedicated to this concept that man is hopeless, that he is helplessly lost in his sins, and that he can only be forgiven and redeemed by the mercy and love of God shown to us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. So this is what I mean when I say we'd want this church to be committed, to be dedicated to the purity of the gospel. Second, we would want to see a church that is committed to the authority of the apostles, now, as I say that, I recognize that that terminology, the authority of the apostles, is not terminology we use around here a lot, and so you may not be completely clear with what's going on there, but I'll clear it up for you by simply asking and answering a very simple question. Where do we find the teaching of the apostles that we consider to be authoritative for us and for the church as a whole? Answer, in the scriptures. As we think about the New Testament, as we think about the scriptures, recognize that that, that New Testament is it's the teaching of the apostles recorded and written down for us. So when I say we want a church that's committed to the authority of the apostles, what I'm really saying is we want a church that is committed to the scriptures. Third, we'd want to see a church that proclaims the centrality of Jesus as being the fulfillment and unifying theme of God's revelation and God's plan. In other words, we want a church that recognizes that as you look through the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament to New, the one person who binds it all together, who it's all about, is none other than Jesus Christ. And as we think about what God is doing in this world, what his larger plan is, past, present, future, recognizing that all of that plan centers on Jesus and his death on the cross for us. And so we want them to proclaim the centrality of Jesus in both of those things. And then finally, we'd want to see a church that has a right understanding of the Christian life and how to live it. Or if I could say it another way, we don't just want them to have uh, orthodoxy, we want them to have orthopraxy. 
Now, you may be sitting there going, I don't know what either of those words mean. Could you help me understand? Absolutely. Orthodoxy is a word that simply refers to right doctrine or sound doctrine, right thinking about God. So if you know, we want to be an orthodox church, we want to have, be a church that thinks right things about God, believes right things about God. Orthopraxy refers to having sound practice or rightly living out your beliefs about God. So if orthodoxy is right thinking, orthopraxy is right living. And we, want, we would want a new church to, to not just believe the right things about the gospel and about the scriptures and about Jesus, but we then want them to go out and live that out in the right way. So there you go. Four things, purity of the gospel, authority of the apostles, centrality of Jesus, right view of Christian living. Now, pause. Pop quiz. You haven't had any time to prepare. First Sunday in our new study, but I'm going to see how you do with this. You get one shot to answer this question. Here you go. In what New Testament book do we find all four of those things emphasized in a unique and compelling way? I'll give you one hint. It starts with a G and it ends with an elations. All right. What do you think? Hey, you guys are so good. I am proud of you. The nine o'clock group did not get that, by the way. Um, now, as I said at the beginning, you know, our study of Galatians, it's timely for us, right at this juncture of Cornerstone's history, because the, the more things change, the more some things have to stay the same, the more they can never change. And those four categories I gave you just a moment ago, they cannot change for us, not now, not in the future. They can't be different with a church plant somewhere or any other church that they, the other church, the new church, could look very different in terms of, of you know, its worship or its children's ministries or how it structures itself or in a whole, whole host of things. But in these four things, we should be identical. And the reason why we should be identical is because those four things are not cornerstone things. Those are biblical things. And because they're biblical things, we should be united in them. And so I'm excited to begin walking through this letter with you. Now, if you've been with us at the beginning of one of our other book studies, and I think this is our fifth one to date, uh, then you know that I am a big proponent of beginning each of these studies with what I call a book introduction. A book introduction is a, an academic term. It's a technical term to refer to the asking and answering of specific questions about any book of the Bible before you begin your study. Questions like, who wrote it? Uh, who was it written to? In what style or genre was it written in? When was it written? Why was it written? Etc. Questions like that. So if you've never done this before, you're going to be amazed at how much asking and answering these kinds of questions will actually help you in your study of this particular book. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to begin asking and answering these questions. We're going to uh, ask and answer just two of them, and then we're going to stop and then we'll come back next Sunday and finish out the rest. And so without further ado, let's begin. Question number one, who is writing? And you see the answer to that question here in the very first word of the letter. It's Paul. Next to Jesus himself, Paul is probably the most well-known character in the New Testament. Uh, we meet Paul for the first time in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, where he's been observing the trial of Stephen. If you remember that, Stephen is is surrounded by adversaries, and he is preaching the gospel to them. And it, near the end of his, his sermon, he has this vision, and so he tells the crowd what the vision is. In verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And the crowd was thrilled with this, right? No, 
crowd is not thrilled with this. Verse 57, they cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears and they rush together at him. And then they cast Stephen out of the city and they stone him, which means they pick up big rocks and they throw it at him in order to kill him. And the witnesses, Luke says, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This guy Saul is our guy Paul. Saul, as many of you will know, is his Jewish name that he uses prior to conversion. Um, and it's probably clear here from this particular uh, situation, Saul is no fan of Christianity. No fan at all. Now, in chapter 7, he's kind of passive, but as you begin chapter 8 of Acts, Luke begins to recount the persecution that Saul himself now begins to bring against the church. He becomes active. He tells us that Saul is ravaging the church. He's entering house after house. He's dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. At the beginning of chapter 9, Luke tells us that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest. He asks for letters uh, to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is an early name for what we think of as Christianity, okay, the way, that he could find those people, men or women, and bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this is who Paul was before conversion. But then, as you move on into chapter 9, you read about his famous conversion there on the road to Damascus, right? And that's very well known. Uh, I'll just quickly walk through it. I'm not going to read it. Christ himself appears to Paul, brings him to faith in a very memorable way. After asking Saul why he's persecuting him, Saul says, you know, who's talking to me? I'm blind. There's a light from heaven. I'm hearing a voice. Who's, who's talking to me? I, I need to know. And so you see it here. Jesus answers, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's all quite dramatic. It's all quite exciting. But to me, the most important part of that story of Paul's conversion is nothing actually there on the road itself. It's what comes after that that becomes, I think, really interesting because after this happens, he's blind, he needs help. And so the Lord goes to a man named Ananias and says, I want you to go help Saul. And when Ananias hears this, he's like super excited, right? No? Okay. He's not because he knows about Saul. He knows who Saul is. He knows what Saul has done. He doesn't want anything to do with Saul. And Jesus then tells Ananias, why it is he needs to go to him? And these are the verses that I think are so important. Christ says to him, go, for he is, and note these words right here very carefully, a chosen instrument of mine. So he's being chosen by Christ for a purpose to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So you see this? This is Ananias being told by Jesus that Paul has been chosen by him for a specific purpose. And after saving Paul, Christ sends him out, just like he says to Ananias here, as a minister, not so cleverly disguised, but as a minister of the gospel primarily to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and God uses him mightily in this way. And this is what we see then Paul referencing here in Galatians chapter 1. He calls himself an apostle. And I've explained this to you before, but it's been a while, so I'll remind you. What does the word apostle mean? An apostle is simply one who has been sent out by another for a purpose. It is someone who is going out representing or going out on behalf of another person in order to do this or that. So husbands, if your wife has ever sent you out uh, to the store and you got company coming over and there's something missing and there's not enough of it and you need to go get it, at the moment you go to the store, guess what you are? 
You are an apostle. You are a representative of your wife being sent out by her for a very specific purpose. Well, used in that generic kind of way, the word apostle can refer to lots of people, can refer to pretty much anyone or any group, and you definitely see it used that way in the New Testament. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, if you were to turn there, which you don't need to right now, but in verse 25, Paul calls Epaphroditus the apostle of the Philippians. Now, if you look in Philippians 2, your, your uh, version, whichever version you have, will not use the word apostle. It will use the word messenger. And I think our translators are doing that because they don't want us to get confused when we see the word apostle because we tend to think of that word a little differently. But in Greek, it's, it's the word apostle. He was sent out by the Philippian church for the purpose of bringing a gift to Paul there in prison. So he fits the bill. He's an apostle used in that generic sense. But when Paul uses this word for himself, he's of course not using it in that generic kind of way. As you well know, there were a special group of men in the early church called the apostles. And for these 12 men, the, the, the word apostle is not a generic term. It's a technical term. It's a title. It's referring to an office that they held in the early church. I mean, just listen to Paul's description of the role of the apostles in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. He says, So then, to the Ephesians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he uses a construction illustration to try to help us understand how the apostles fit into this thing that we think of as a church and how we do as well. So, so Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the, 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 the original stone, the stone on which everything else on that building is built. And next is a foundation layer, the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles. And then on that, we all are built as well. This analogy just helps us understand the importance of the apostles in God's plan for the church. If you look two chapters further on, Ephesians chapter 4, you'd see that Jesus gave the apostles to the church as a gift to the church. Revelation 21, you see the same idea where John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and he sees the foundation layers being the apostles. And so the apostles, when used in this technical sense, when referring to this title or this office, they're, they're kind of a big deal. They're kind of a big deal and, and they're of great importance to the church. But here's my question, why? I mean, why are they so important? You know, why is it that Paul, at the beginning, I think of every or almost every letter of his to someone, feels that he can just drop the term, I'm an apostle, sort of on the table and let them deal with it for a moment as he begins his writing? Why would he do that? Well, first of all, these 12 men are important because they were personally and specifically chosen by Christ himself to represent him here in the early church. Remember, an apostle represents someone. They're there on behalf of someone. And in the case of the 12 apostles, they are representing Christ after his ascension there in the early church. They've been specifically chosen by him for this purpose. And if I may, and I may, um, I'm going to go down a quick little rabbit trail at this point because it's something that's always interesting to me, especially when I'm thinking about the apostles in any way. But do you remember that scene in Acts chapter 1? In Acts chapter 1, the Peter and the disciples, the 11, um, and then all the other believers who are with them are all in the upper room. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit 
to come. And while they're sitting there waiting, they decide to replace Judas. Judas at this point, of course, has betrayed Jesus and he has killed himself. And so they're down to 11. And so I guess Peter's like, you know, odd numbers aren't good. I don't know what his motivation is, but he's like, we need to replace him. And so in, in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, I think it's where it is, he stands up and he says, we need to do this. And so they decide to come up with some criteria. How, you know, who do we use? How can we figure out who to replace him with? So they, they come up with criteria that it should be someone who was generally with the group from the time of Jesus' baptism up until the present moment. So when they set that criteria, there are two names that come forward, Barsabbas and a guy named Matthias. And so then they got these two names. They're like, how do we decide? Well, let's pray and we'll cast lots. If you know what casting lots is, it's kind of like rolling dice, sort of. And so whichever, whoever dice comes up, that's the one who's going to be it. So they pray and they cast dice and whoop, Matthias's name is chosen. And in Peter's mind, this is what he says to the group in the upper room. They, they choose Matthias and he says to them that they have chosen him to occupy this ministry and, note the next word, apostleship from which Judas turned aside. So in Peter's mind, clearly, he's replacing Judas, right? It's, hey, Judas was an apostle. Judas failed. We need to replace him. Okay, we got Matthias. We're good. And Luke doesn't comment on this at all. He simply records it, and then he moves on. And what's interesting to me is that Matthias is never mentioned again anywhere in the New Testament after this moment. He gets his one little five seconds of fame there in chapter one, and then he's gone forever. And the question is, why? Well, I can't prove this definitively, but I believe that, um, I think my argumentation here is pretty strong. I think the reason he's never mentioned again is because he's not actually an apostle of Jesus Christ. You say, wait a minute, what? Well, think about it. Did Christ choose Matthias like he chose the 11 and like he chose Paul? No. He didn't. Peter and the other disciples chose him via this nomination and lot casting plan that they put together. You say, well then, Stacy, do you think that the choosing of Matthias was wrong and that, you know, maybe they shouldn't have done it? And, and if so, why does Luke record it? Well, I wouldn't say that it's wrong. I don't think that's the right question to ask. I think the question is, whose place was it to replace Judas? Was it Peter's place to replace him? Peter didn't choose Judas. It wasn't, he wasn't the disciple or the, of Peter, the apostle of Peter. And so what had Peter been told to do? What had all the disciples been told to do? They had been told by Jesus to go to the upper room and wait. That was it. Go to the upper room and wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And so they're up in the upper room and... I don't know, Peter tends to act sometimes when he shouldn't. We've seen that elsewhere, right, in the Gospels. And Peter all of a sudden feels the need to replace Judas, and so he leads them in this little endeavor, and Matthias is chosen. But never again do we hear of him. And you say, well, why does, why does Luke record it? Well, because it happened. <laughs> Luke is, is a historian. He's writing down the events of what occurred at that time, and so he records this moment when they choose Matthias to replace Judas, my point to you is simply is that in order to be one of the apostles, I think you have to be personally and specifically chosen by Christ himself. And we know he chose the 11, and we know he chose Paul. Matthias, though, was not chosen by Jesus, at least not based on any evidence we have. 
And so if you look back at Galatians 1 now, the way that Paul refers to himself here, I think you can see him even making this point very clearly. He says, I'm an apostle, not from men, not through man, uh, man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. In other words, he didn't choose to be an apostle. He didn't go to college for it. He's not voted in by some kind of a board who has to approve his you know, paperwork to make sure he can you know, fulfill the role. He's chosen by Christ according to the will of God. Only 12 men are chosen for that office. That office was never intended to be perpetuated throughout the church. The, the apostles died. The apostles fulfilled their ministry, and they, they died but that doesn't mean that we don't still have a connection to them because we do. We have a very strong connection to them, which is the other reason why being an apostle is such a big deal because the apostles are the ones chosen by God to communicate God's truth to the church. When you open up your New Testament, you are opening up the teaching of the apostles. You want to know what they said? You want to know what they taught? You want to know what they believed? Read, read Galatians. Read Colossians. Read 1 Peter. Read Romans, read Hebrews, read any of these books, and you have a direct connection to the apostles, the, the words of Jesus, the teaching of the apostles. This is what fills the 27 books that make up our New Testament. And so when Paul says to the Galatians, hey, I'm an apostle, he's not just wasting his time. He's not just wasting words. He's not just throwing out an empty title. That title means something. It's his way of saying that he has the right the ability to speak to them, to teach them, to rebuke them if necessary. And so that is who he is. Notice also before we move on, Paul is not the only person that this letter is from. If you look at the beginning of verse 2, you see he also says that this letter is from all the brothers who are with me. So some group of people who are with him. It's kind of a group letter being written to the Galatians. He calls them brothers. These are fellow Christians. We have no idea who they are. He's the apostle. He's got the brothers with them together. They have some things to say to the Galatian believers. So who wrote it? Paul and the brothers. Now, let's partially answer one more question. Just partially answer it today. And then we'll stop and we'll come back to this one next week. Who is this letter written to? Well, if you can read behind me at all, you already know the answer to this question. It is written to the believers in Galatia, right? It says it right there at the end of verse 2. And I want you to raise your hand if you can answer this question. You won't have to do it out loud. I just want to see. Who remembers what happened when Paul visited the city of Galatia in the book of Acts? Okay. Other than the shell hearts who were here in the first one, nobody. Which is good, because guess what? There is no city of Galatia. Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a region. It's a Roman province. And at the time of Paul's first missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14, and which you will read about if you do the questions that are here, uh, it was very large. It touched the Black Sea in the north and Mediterranean Sea in the south. And during that first missionary journey, Paul visits at least four Galatian cities. The first one is this one called Pisidian Antioch. And it's called Pisidian Antioch to distinguish it from the other Antioch, which you can see in the purple there in the region of Syria. In Acts 13, we read about how God used Paul and Barnabas powerfully as they preached here, how many Jews and Gentiles came to believe the gospel through their preaching in the city. And after some time of preaching, the Jews became jealous, the unbelieving Jews, I should say, became jealous, and they drove Paul and Barnabas out of town. And so where did they go? They go to the next city, which is Iconium. They stay for some time here in the city. 
And Luke tells us that the city becomes divided as they're there. Uh, some of the people believe, some don't, some want to hear him, some don't. And so eventually uh, some of the Jews and Gentiles begin to plot together to come up with a way to stone Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas decide to leave and they go to Lystra, which is where they heal a lame man. And this is one of the most interesting stories, I think, in the book of Acts, because they go, they heal this guy who can never walk, now he can walk. And what do the people of Lystra do? They think that Paul and Barnabas are Hermes and Zeus come in the flesh to their town. They've come down from Olympus to, to this town and are now healing people. And they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas, which they are not okay with. All right, They try to stop them from worshiping them, and eventually they do. However, sometime after that, whether it's soon or, or late, we don't know, sometime after that, Jews from Antioch and Iconium come over to Lystra, and they lead the people of that town to stone Paul. So one day they're worshiping him, one day they're stoning him, okay? And they, they stone him. They think he's dead. They drag his body out of town and throw it out. They think that Paul is dead. And Luke tells us that when the believers gather around his body, he just, he gets up and he goes back into the city. That's the craziest part of that story to me because I'd be like, I'm leaving. But he goes back into the city, at least for the night. And the next day he leaves for Derby. They preach the gospel there. They make disciples. And then we're told that they go back through each of those cities, strengthening the disciples and appointing elders in every church. These are the Galatians. So it's not just written to one city like Ephesians is. Ephesians is written to the believers in the city of Ephesus. This is written to the believers in a region. Now I'm going to stop here for today and we'll pick up answering the rest of our questions next week. But I want to leave you with this. As you just saw in our very brief, very brief overview of Paul's time in those four cities in the province of Galatia, he had quite an experience there, didn't he? I mean, on the one hand, if you read through the full account of his time, it's just two chapters in Acts, if you read through the full account of his time in those Galatian cities, you would see that God used him tremendously. This was Paul's very first missionary journey, his very first time going out to spread the gospel to the Gentile world. This is his introduction, if you would, to the realities of what Jesus said to him through Ananias, that he would be a chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus to Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel. He doesn't, that we are aware of, meet any kings on this journey, though he will later, but he definitely is preaching the gospel to Gentiles and to Jews. He gets to do that here. God uses it. And as Luke records it, many, many people turn to Christ through this time. It's, it's a tremendous blessing. On the other hand, if you read through the full account of his time in these Galatian cities, Acts 13 and 14, you'll realize that Paul also suffers tremendously, right? This is his introduction to the realities of the rest of what Jesus said to Ananias when he said that he would come to know how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And he does suffer. He's ridiculed. He's harassed. He, he's, he's threatened. Eventually he's stoned. He either dies and is resurrected or he is mortally wounded and God miraculously heals him. I don't know which, nor does it matter, but something tremendous happens there. He suffers all of this in order to bring, to bring the gospel to the region of Galatia. And this is the thought I will leave you with then and where we'll pick up next week. If you were in Paul's shoes, and put yourself there for a moment, just based on the little you know right now. If you're in Paul's shoes, if you have seen 
the fruit of the gospel that you had just seen in this time of, of ministering. You've seen lots of people accept Christ. You've seen lots of people turn to the truth. And if at the same time you have suffered tremendously, you've been nearly killed, or how would you feel if right after you've left or sometime after you left, someone came in and attempted to destroy the gospel that you had preached and along with it, the people you had ministered to? Do you think you might feel defensive or protective? Do you think you might feel the need to take action? Do you think you might be willing to fight for those people and for the truth of the gospel that you had proclaimed? Think about those things. We'll come back to them next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you already for what we've seen. Even though we're just beginning this book and we have a long way to go, we're already seeing very simple truths that, that you fulfill your word. You told Ananias that Paul was a chosen instrument of yours to carry the gospel to the Gentile world, that he would suffer many things as a result of that. And already we're seeing it right here in his very first missionary journey is happening. And so I pray, Lord, that as we continue to work through the book of Galatians, that we'll just remember that the things we read there, they will, they're, they're true as well. They will come to pass as well, and we need to take them seriously and that you will then use that to mold us, shape us, change us more and more into the image of your Son. We ask your blessing on our time together. It's in his name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.